Hello and welcome to YAF, the yet another Final Fantasy podcast where I go through the Final Fantasy games, game by game, chapter or whatever, section by section. My name's Antonin Januska and I have very limited Final Fantasy experience and this is the first season of my podcast so I'm covering Final Fantasy 1. I have, I thought I had played this game up to some certain desert area but I was wrong. I probably played Final Fantasy 2 and I'll have to check that out in the next season. Hopefully I'll keep this podcast going. So last time I, the the Light Warriors were able to defeat who was it, the Lich King and turn on the Crystal of Earth. The Crystal of Earth had been turned off for like what, 200 years or something like that by the Lich King because it was turned off. It like turned that entire area, that continent pretty desolate. It looks fine to me, which is kind of confusing, but wait, is that the crystal? Yeah. That's the Crystal of Earth. That's right. Okay, yeah, it turned pretty desolate. At least that's... It didn't really look desolate, but it was the city of Melmond, which to me looked like an elf city, but I guess it's not. Yeah, the city of Melmond basically withered away. So you turn it on and you're told about the Crescent Lake. So you have to go to the Crescent Lake, which is on the other side of the world, basically. I kind of re- I kind of really like this, that the mountains are this indivisible... Div- in, not indivisible. Insurmountable obstacle between regions. This means that the Crescent Lake and the elf kingdom, the elfland, uh, elfland, can coexist on the same continent and be separate and have like these mountains that separate them. When you get to Crescent Lake, Crescent Lake is the name of the town, I guess. It is very nice and it looks very posh. Like, I guess this is what I would r- imagine like a gated, expensive neighborhood looks like. And yeah, that's pretty much what the, what the town looks like. Even in the old version, it looks very like proper and manicured, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it just looks really nice. For the first time ever, we have like an outside of town area where you can walk to. So you walk through these like woods to get to these sages. And uh, the sages all have something to say, but essentially one of them gives you a canoe so that you can go, so you can use the different waterways around that area. Like Crescent Lake itself is made of this like tile or whatever, so that you know that you can use the canoe on there. And it just automatically activates when you walk onto that tile, when you walk onto that region. I have not tried it, but I kind of wonder if the endings of the rivers, if you come up to them with a ship, if you can go into a canoe, but I'm guessing not because all the ships have to dock at a specific port. Yeah, so you go through the Crescent Lake, there's a bunch of new equipment, a bunch of new spells, and there are a bunch of new spells that are available only to wizard level classes. I don't have any wizards, I only have mages. This is something that I didn't really understand in this game. I was like, alright, well, I have a bunch of mages, I guess they're gonna turn into wizards at some point. Nope, I'm like level 30 and they're still not wizards. I believe that the next there's like this uh, a section in the walkthrough called the trials and I believe that is when uh, will be that that's when the mages will become wizards. I don't know if I mentioned this but the name of this section is called the crystal of fire. So we will be activating the crystal of fire which is in Mount Golg, Golg, I guess. Yeah, so you go to Mount Golg and I'm I'm kind of reading through the guide and it says that you can kind of do things a little bit out of order, then you can get the airship first and and then you can go through the trials and then you can come back to the Crystal of Fire. I'm gonna go ahead and just keep it as is in the walkthrough and I'm looking that after the airship and trials we'll be getting the rest of the crystals, so who cares? So in Mount Mount Golg is a really interesting map, is a really interesting uh, cave. So first of all, to get to it, you basically go down these river paths between tall mountains and it's really cool actually. You can't camp there or set up a tent or anything, so it means that you're in these like waterways 
where you can encounter monsters, but you can't get a resp. They're kind of winding, so it feels like a little bit like a maze. I will be honest, I did use the map a little bit in that I knew that Mount Gog was, Gog was northeast of Crescent Lake. So I kind of just followed those paths. I did get lost a few times. That's totally all right. Once you make it to Mount Gog, there is a brand new type of tile that every time you step on one, you lose every party member in your party loses one HP, but you cannot be attacked by monsters. It is a really weird and interesting trade-offs. Trade-off, I really enjoy the fact that the locations and environments are so varied in this game. You know, I was worried that every single cave I go to will be exactly the same one, but each one is very unique. So Mount Golg is definitely a little bit more symmetrical than some of the other caves. Like the first, first level is literally a circle and you basically enter from like an appendage that extends from the circle. I don't know how to explain it. It looks, it looks like a shuriken or like a throwing star and you enter from one of the ends and you have to go through the middle and all the way to a different end spiky end of that throwing star design but then you descend one floor and you're faced with another one interesting uh, another interesting situation where you can go through this like maze and encounter all these different monsters to open up a ton of chests and there's a lot of loot and i really like this about this game it's just the fact that like if you take the time to explore specific aspects or parts of the map you can get so much loot and it triumphs triumphs anything that you can get at get you know in the town so you get the great sword which is great for great to use against giants and you get like a phoenix down you get some mithril stuff which is cool mithril stuff is cool i always like that but you can buy it now i guess so the great sword i guess is what the 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 one item that's special and then you kind of go through these different floors there's nothing really going on in, in on floor three or floor four so floor two is basically that maze that i talked about like floor three is basically like all right do you want how many lava squares do you want to step on and let's have a bunch of encounters and it's just like this big empty map i like something about it because you still encounter a lot of enemies along the way and you still have to like make the decision between going on lava square or encounter an enemy um i'm okay with that you gain some i had some ice magic like i had blizzara so it was pretty easy to just defeat everything and i ended up like grinding through it you know i ended up going down to the flo fourth floor which has again a ton more loot and again you're you're trying to decide between stepping on lava squares stepping on regular squares where you might get attacked and making your journey as short as possible so that you don't encounter too many monsters so that they weaken you too much you don't so that you don't walk on too many lava squares because those are gonna you know take away your health but you also don't want to miss out on all the cool stuff especially since there is an ice sword <laughs> on level four and the ice sword is good against all of the flame monsters interestingly enough when you get to floor five i don't really understand this but sometimes there are like these open looted chests don't really get it maybe i don't i don't get it i don't really understand it maybe i missed something in the walkthrough but there are a lot of like open chests that i know i didn't open but whatever at, at the end of it you at the end of the cave you encounter merilith which is like a fire fiend she is not weak to ice which is weird and according to walkthrough i was supposed to cast like null blaze and silence and all these other all this other their stuff or confuse and sleep i don't have any of those spells i just brute forced it and i killed merilith and uh got the teleport back to the top of the cave which was cool so this was not a very difficult chapter it was really nice though that basically by activating the crystal of fire or sorry the crystal of earth the fire fiend merilith or carry it says i don't know I, i'm guessing it changes to, according to which game you're playing um so like merilith carry the fire fiend woke up as a result of your actions 
So basically like, all right, well, Crystal of Earth is messed up. That sucks. Well, that whole region is barren, but the Crescent Lake is doing fine and Mount Golg is, Golg is doing fine. But because of the fact that you restored one crystal, it caused like an imbalance elsewhere. And I wonder if that theme is going to continue through the game, that as you open more uh, turn on more crystals, like more messed up stuff happens. <laughs> I did notice one thing, and that's that the shrines get unblocked. So like the the Earth Shrine was the first one unblocked, and when I defeated Merilith, I got a little cutscene that I'm. I think it was called like Hellfire Shrine or something like that got opened. Um, I don't even know where that is, so I didn't really care that much about it. So again, the story continues. You know, you're still the Light Warriors. You're still turning on all the different crystals. I just can't get over the level design and just the design. The, the game design of this entire game. I know that the Game Boy Advance version is easier, so I'm definitely feeling that ease. I'm feeling that this is because I know where to go and, you know, the guide helps me a lot. I am not encountering too many problems. It's still a difficult game, but it's not a difficult game so much so that even I couldn't play it. And I'm 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 not that great of a RPG player. I think the thing that I like about RPGs is the fact that I can keep trying and I keep keep, keep grinding and make the rest of the game easier without having to understand the game really well. <laughs> and so, you know, this totally lends to that. If you didn't know how to defeat Fire Fiend and you don't you don't get the hang of the spells or the weapons, you know, you can still grind through and make a win. I am looking forward to the airship. I had no idea the first Final Fantasy game had uh, an airship that's like a staple of Final Fantasy is airships. I like it. And I think that's about it. Uh, the Circle of Sages was a little bit confusing to me, but it was kind of cool to be able to explore the outside of the town. Um, that is something that I feel like I'm missing from here, from Final Fantasy, and I wonder if it's going to come up. This was something that I liked in Chrono Trigger is that you had like an overworld, and then you had like, you you were, you didn't have like the zoom in action only in the town or only in a cave. You also had this zoom in action, like the, the change of controls and you're zoomed in on your character and you get running like that I think that's like the most distinguishing characteristic especially on the GBA because that's where that feature came from when you press B and you can run it's like that zoomed in area that's what I'm talking about that like the the town or our cave where things basically just react a little bit differently than when you're in the overworld and I liked that in Chrono Trigger this was a thing you know you went to the dinosaur age and you went to a rainforest and that rainforest was like the zoomed in area I don't see that here yet. And I hope, I hope that it becomes a thing, that it's not going to be just like a dungeon crawler. Because so far the game is essentially, you know, cross the overworld to get to the next town and then go to the cave that's nearby the town. I don't mind that cadence. I'm just wondering if there's going to be a little bit more variety. I guess with the airship there will be variety, but I don't know if there'll be any variety with the zoomed in stuff. Before I sign off from this episode and, I don't know, play the next section, which is getting the airship, I wanted to mention just the fact that the combat is getting more and more fun as I progress through the game. One thing that has always been intimidating about JRPGs specifically, not even RPGs, but JRPGs, have been the focus on builds, focus on, I want to say, breaking the game, focus on getting the most out of your characters in order to be able to progress. You actually see that a bunch in, uh, I hate saying this, but you actually see this a bunch in Pokemon. So Pokemon is pretty easy to play through all the way up to like Elite Four. Elite Four, obviously it requires that, you know, you know something about the game and about how to play. But typically the post game and, and you know, competitive or whatever else requires you to be very knowledgeable on how to build out teams and stuff. And with, fi with Final Fantasy, I kind of found that as well. I mean, I played through like the first disc of Final Fantasy VII and the material 
Nvidia system just it kicked my ass. Like I don't think I set up anything correctly. Going through this game and knowing some of the basics, like that Red Mage can wield both dark and light magic, is very helpful because if there are a lot of like helpful dark magic spells, you know that the Red Mage is made for that. Um, whereas like the Light Mage, you focus only on light spells, and you're like, okay, what can I use? What would be useful to my party? And one thing that I found interesting was in the guide the mention that hey, you shouldn't be relying on items as much anymore. And I thought, what do you mean? Like, that sounds like a weird thing to say. But then I realized that I use my mage, my white mage, as basically my backpack, so to speak. My white mage does all of the healing. My white mage does, you know, a lot of the ailment or status problems. Like, uh, my white mage fixes those. And so I find myself going to my backpack less and less. The only time I see myself using the items is whenever I'm getting close to the end of the dungeon. And I'm like, all right, I got to save up my MP, right? Moving forward from that right you have the warrior or the fighter whatever you want to call that um character class and the fighter character class or the warrior character basically just means that hey this character can't do magic which makes it really like much simpler to use than in some of the later installments where you'll have like um attack heavy characters or tanky characters that for some reason have the ability to do magic again i'm thinking final fantasy 7 materia system that encourages you to mix and match you know and the fact that the gba version has the optimal equipment option makes it much easier as well so you have the warrior you always expect the warrior to be the strongest you always give the warrior the best weapons you always give the warrior the weapons that you know that you can equip against the specific creatures you're fighting so like a, what was it called a great sword against giants or the coral sword against uh, water uh, type monsters and then you have like a thief right like that's what I'm using and I don't entirely understand the role of the thief the only thing I really see is the the fact that if I cast haste on the thief, it makes that character very strong. In the same way, I can cast temper on the fighter. The fighter is not very fast, but the fighter is supposed to, be, or the warrior is supposed to be uh, incredibly powerful. So if you make that character even more powerful, you know it works out for you. And that's about it. And so this kind of like simplified class system, this simplified attribute system, makes it very much much easier for someone like me to tackle this game. I am watching some like. Final Fantasy lore videos. I've gotten a little bit into that. I still don't want to get too many spoilers, and I already got a spoiler that I'm not happy about that's going to come in like two chapters. But outside of that, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and it's still a little bit of a simple story, but it makes sense for the time when this game came out that it'd be a fairly simple game. You know, you wouldn't expect something like the Knights of the Old Republic, which has a deep backstory, which has so much world building and lore and background and foreground and everything and twists and turns you don't expect that from a game that came out like 15 years before Kotor, right? I think about Final Fantasy 7 that has a really deep story and a backstory and blah blah and all this stuff. Again, that's like 7-8 years later. I don't even know when Final Fantasy came out. Was it like 1989? Let's see. Final Fantasy. I think I've looked this up on this podcast before. 1987. That is a very long time ago. That's 10 years prior to Final Fantasy 7. So I don't expect this deep story, but it's been it's been fun so far. The story is good. The, the fighting is good. It's simple enough. And I think whatever changes they made in the PS1 PSP and GBA versions really paid off because I constantly hear that this game is incredibly difficult, hard to play whatsoever, and these newer newer versions 
Lawrence did a really good job of, of making this game playable today and enjoyable today. Well, until next time, when we catch the airship, this was Yaf, the yet another Final Fantasy podcast, and this was me, Antonin Januska. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com slash yaffpodcast, Y-A-F-F podcast. Um, you know, subscribe, like, describe, share, do whatever you want with the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.